This is Anthony Pascal. And this is Lori Elster, and this is the All Access Star Trek Podcast. This week, we will be reviewing Lower Decks, Episode 7 of Season 2, called Where Pleasant Fountains Lie. And we will also get into where that title's from a little later. But first, we're going to do the Star Trek News of the Week, which starts with the interview you did with Akiva Goldsman on the red carpet at Star Trek Day, talking about strange new worlds. He continues to say everything people want him to say especially talking about the episodic nature of the show um and he says that because of what they're doing by going episodic it lets them do what the original series did which he described as oh henry type stories or twilight zone type stories that have a kind of twist at the end and have a moral and that all sounds like the right thing to do right yeah, well, it sounds like what we've been missing. I mean, I would, you know, I think Next Generation had tones of that, but really the original series had the most of it. And people are hankering for it. People want a break from serialization and just want to go on some adventures and get story twists that don't take a whole season to unfold. So, I, I mean, that is what I want to hear. Whether it's going to happen or not, I, I can only cross my fingers and hope, but it's definitely what I wanted to hear. I still think, though, that they're going to be running into a lot of familiar things more than we want. Yeah, no, I totally think so. And we'll see how heavy handed they are, but I think they'll be very heavy handed. <laughs> but I'm hoping, you know, I like all the actors. And so I'm hoping that that'll just make things more fun and zazz it up and and not dwell so much on Look, this thing is back. Remember this? Remember this? Remember this? So we'll see. Obviously, they held back some of the look of the show, but we know that they've definitely gone out of their way from what we've seen with the character trailer, that the uniforms and the sets look more like the original series. And I asked him about that. And the way he described it says, we iterated it one more time from Discovery, obviously, um, to get even closer to the original series. Because again, they're seeing everything about this being, you know, let's get closer and let's get closer. The quote he says is, I think that the organizing principle for our iteration was our view of canon. But having said that, we body English the shit out of some things in order to make it work. I had to look up body English. I was not familiar with that term. And then every time I look it up, I kind of forget what it means about 20 minutes. Well, later. do you ever play? Have you ever played pool? Yes. Have you ever heard the term you put spin on the ball? Yep. You know, it's that kind of thing. Another phrase is twist themselves into pretzels. So I think that they are, they're trying to get as close to canon as possible, but he's admitting they take some leaps, I would say, to make things fit. Well, sure. I mean, as soon as you put, you know, Christine Chapel on Pike's Enterprise, then, you know, and even Uhura, really, unless she was like not on the bridge, um... That's all fine. The problem is, do we get into the thing of like Enterprise bringing the Ferengi in and bringing the Borg in and like, you know, and they use cute ways to kind of make it all work. But yeah, sure, it might fit. You might have body Englished it into the show. But uh, did we need it? Right. That's always <laughs> the... going to be the question. I can be pretty forgiving if something works. Um, But it's funny. Someone was just bringing up on Twitter uh, Riker telling Roe to take off her in her first episode to take off her Bajoran earring and comparing it to Worf's Baldrick and saying like why would he ask her to do that and doesn't it seem on Starfleet to ask her to do that and I'm like 
Yeah, but they wanted that payoff at the end. So <laughs> that's why they did it. But yeah, that didn't work either. So, you know, if it works, I'm more forgiving. Now, something I've been curious about on the show is the because the original series was really about two people and then eventually three. You know, like uh, DeForest Kelly wasn't even in the main credits in the first season, right? Right. So, but then you look at something like DS9 and there were episodes where Avery Brooks was like barely in it. Right. Well, they had, I think, if you added up their main characters plus what I would call their secondary characters who were in tons of episodes, that's the biggest cast. I mean, the Voyager directors say they had the biggest ones but they because they had nine regulars. But Deep Space Nine had so many incidental characters that were there all the time. It was a lot. So, you know, I kind of thought that they're going with that it's going to be Anson and Rebecca and Ethan as a Troika like the original series, but he said, no, they're going for ensemble. And then he said, you know, but some episodes will be more a Pike episode and then maybe a Mabenka episode, which right. kind of sounds in a way like TNG used to be, at least after Michael Pillar got involved, where you'd have a Wharf episode and then a Troy episode and then a, you know, and that kind of was the way it was all through the Berman era. So he said, you know, we don't, this is what um, Akiva said. We don't actually try to tell everybody's story every week. So, you know, there'll be a week where Mbenga isn't there, you know, or, you know, it, that's fine. That's the thing. Like, don't right. try to cram. I think sometimes on Discovery, they like try to give everyone something to do every episode. And sometimes you just, you know, what if, you know, maybe you just don't need that character this week. Then, you know, you don't really need that moment for them. Yeah, I mean, I do like on the on using the ensemble and making good use of it. And I think that it's easier to do individual stories for characters when you have more episodes in a season. But these shows don't have a lot of episodes in a season. You know, if they gave everybody an episode, they'd pretty much almost be done. So <laughs> it's a right. little it's a little tricky that way because they don't have those 26 episodes to play with. Yeah, I mean, my bet is every episode is a Pike episode. Yeah, yeah. But it's also a Mabenga episode, you know. Yeah, and I then, mean, your captain is always going to be involved, so. That's pretty much it for Strange New Worlds. We're still waiting for a release date. We're still waiting for a real trailer. We know now that we're not going to get a trailer, or we think we're not going to get a trailer at New York Comic Con, because they're just going to be doing two panels. Yeah, Prodigy and Discovery. We're not sure if they're going to do anything for San Diego Comic Con, which I don't know if you guys know this, but there's a weird San Diego Comic-Con coming in November, a special Thanksgiving San Diego Comic-Con. Don't get me which, started on everybody being told to show up there on Thanksgiving weekend when they all haven't seen their well, families in a couple I don't want to go. I mean, Christine's going to go. I don't want to go. So I'm hoping they say we're not going because if they're going, then I got to go and I don't want to go. Yeah, so, I wouldn't miss Thanksgiving with my family, you know? I just yeah. wouldn't. Okay, let's move on to Picard. You guys, was that you and Matt who did that analysis of the of the Star Trek Day trailer for Picard? Because you guys killed it. I think other people chimed in, but it was it was primarily Matt, and then I kind of came in. And, but it was really it was seventy six percent Matt, twenty percent <laughs> me, six percent other people. Um, well, it's so thorough. That, that adds so up to one hundred two percent, by the way. Yeah, it's fine. People should go to the <laughs> website because there's just we have pictures for you know frames to look at, all kinds of details that will, if you really want to try and pull all the clues together, 
this is where you can do it. So let's talk about some of the highlights, I think, and then we'll leave our listeners to go to the site and check out the rest and see the pictures that go with it. I think at the high level, what I found most interesting is that almost, I think none of the trailer takes place in the prime timeline, you know, so they are, you know, there's, there's no hiding it anymore. They're going time travel, they're going alternate universe. And really, there's kind of two big chunks of the trailer. It's alternate timeline, the totalitarian timeline stuff, and the Los Angeles in 2020 something. We don't know. Now, we did see a little bit of the prime timeline, we believe, in the previous trailer. So we think there's going to be some, but our thinking now is that sometime very early in the first episode, that's over with and that they they end up in this alternate stuff. Yeah, well, why wait? If that's your big story, you may as well jump in. The article is basically two big chunks, all the alt stuff and then all the L.A. stuff. We did miss a few things about the Borg Queen. I mean, we knew that she was involved in the time travel somehow. But the thing, the big thing I missed, which you guys found, I guess, just with a good freeze frame, was um, that when in that moment that she's with Gerardi, with Agnes Gerardi, she there are little nanobots like on Gerardi's head, like something pretty major seems to be going on there. So basically the way it flows is that, you know, Picard comes up with a plan. We're going to do some time travel. I have no way to do it. They show up at what we believe is the Daystrom Institute, um, which Gerardi worked at in the prime timeline. So why wouldn't she also be there? Well, maybe because she'd be in jail for killing somebody, but I guess not. Well, this is what, you know, the alt timeline saves them that trouble. Oh, that's (laughs) Um, true. Yeah. So they show up at her lab. They steal the board queen, bring her to the ship where she's literally bolted into the engine, which is kind of creepy. And then I think on La Serena, we see the board queen reaching out and little robot. So, you know, now I'm thinking, so Gerardi's going to be mind controlled again. Again. (laughs) It's like, is she going to kill another person? This poor woman. (laughs) Hasn't she been through enough? (laughs) So once you do Gerardi, then, you know, can't you do the whole crew? And the question is like, how does the Borg Queen have the ability to assimilate people? It's like, didn't they take precautions? (laughs) I mean, it seems like (laughs) if if you have a Borg, you know, and, and they're capable of assimilating you don't just let people walk up and touch them, right? Like right. you put a force field around them or, you know, or you, yeah, I don't know. It's just, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be a reason, but it's almost like, geez. Well, you know. she is supposed to be an expert on artificial life forms. That That's going to be something for her to deal with in season two, since she's not going to jail. There was, if you notice through the trailer, there's a lot of contemporary stuff. All that's Los Angeles, except for one moment, which is actually Hong Kong. Yeah. And there, but there's no live action in Hong Kong. There's just a Hong Kong skyline and they show an explosion, but it doesn't look futuristic enough to be, we think it's 2400 or 2399 for the rest of the stuff. So, but it, it, it looks a little more futuristic than now. So we're not really sure where that fits in, but that could be, our, our theory is, that could be this, the pivot point, the thing they're trying to stop. Some kind of terrorist attack, some kind of, Something that changes the timeline and, you know, it happens in Hong Kong, but uh, they have to go to L.A. because it's cheaper. 
to film in Los Angeles and uh, solve the problem there. The question of where exactly they are in the 2020s is a big question. Like, you know, is it 2022? Like, are they doing the thing where they just, because the show's going to be out in 2022. So do they just come back to 2022? Or is it sometime after that? Because we do see some things that don't fit. You know, there's this Europa mission uh, to the planet Europa, which is like not, you know, there isn't really a big, well, there is one, but it's unmanned. But we think this is something more significant than that. And, you know, there's a sanctuary district. Yeah, from Deep Space Nine's Past Tense, which is one of my favorite episodes, by the way. But yeah, they reference that. There's all kinds of, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where they're going to be. I mean, I these things I'm usually pretty content to just wait and see, but I know you love to try and nail it all down before you watch. Well, because I'm now starting to think that, because, you know, Memory Alpha says World War Three started in 2026, but that's, you know, off a thing that was on a screen. I mean, Star Trek First Contact was 2063. So there's plenty of time to get to the post-war era, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe World War III doesn't, doesn't start in four years. Like, maybe on this show, they're like, well, maybe some of the early indicators of World War III started, but, you know, the, the nukes didn't start flying till later. Right. So maybe, maybe we've got a little more flexibility. Maybe this is 2030 or something like that. So, um, so that they could do a little, you know, have some more futuristic stuff in there. Yep. Oh, there's another thing that a lot of fans noticed. If if you freeze frame, um, there's an actor named Jay Carnes who played a character Duquesne in the Voyager episode Relativity. He's the one who, you know, the first officer, Captain Braxton, uh, was the captain, and he was the first officer. And they were correcting time mistakes and using Seven to do it. So you go, oh well, Jay Carnes, time travel, 29th century Starfleet. Se- seven's there. Yep. Sure, it all fits. I buy that, except for the fact that the showrunner is Terry Metalis, who recently worked with the same actor on his recent other time travel show, 12 Monkeys. And I just think he likes Jay Carnes and, you know, he hired him. Right. And so it's, you know, it's the long tradition of one actor playing different roles in Star Trek and it's not the same character. Right. Yeah, it would actually be a fun. There's a lot of fun you could have with that. But yeah, I wouldn't say that it's definitive that that's what they're doing. He's just playing some cop who's interrogating, you know, because they go back in time. They cause some trouble and they're going to end up running across. I mean, there seems to be a few intersections with law enforcement because you have Seven and Rafi stealing a police car for some reason. (laughs) You have Picard being interrogated by some kind of agent, cop, detective. And um, then you've got Rios in a fight with a Homeland Security guy on what looks like a prison transport bus. So they're definitely going to run into the law, basically, while they're doing whatever shenanigans they're doing in L.A. (laughs) It's going to be a wild season. (laughs) It looks just very (laughs) fast-paced. We still haven't figured it all out, but we think we have a good handle on season two now. So now we're starting to think about season three because they're already shooting it. Yeah, and so we've seen a few uh, tweets, a few posts about what's going on. So we know Frakes is directing, which is always good news. Yeah, he definitely directed a couple in season two and in season one, obviously. So, you know, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So Orla Brady, who we love, um, she plays one of the two Romulans, Laris, is definitely in 
season two because we saw her in the trailer and she's been mentioned in press releases. Last week, she tweeted that she had wrapped on season two and said, it's time for me to take off my beloved pointy ears. Now, I mean, it just seemed like, okay, so maybe she's saying I'm done with season two, but I'm about to start on season. But, you know, saying she's kind of done with the ears sounds like she's done on season two and she's done. Yeah. As in she's not, not coming back. I don't think she would have, you know, we know that they went into that. They basically just finished season two one day on a Thursday and then picked up season three on a Friday. So I don't think she would have posted that if she was just rolling into season three. Unless she's trying to yeah. trick everybody, which doesn't seem like it seems that seems kind of goofy. Yeah, it's it just seems weird to say I, I'm done. Oh, and I'm starting again. You know, it's right. like you know the ears are off. It's over for her. Maybe she dies. Maybe they just don't need her in season three. I need her in season three. Great character. Yeah, it does look like she goes back in time with them too, so she can wear a little knitted cap like Spock used to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, she's got long hair, so she could. Try and hide it that way, I well, guess. Well, that you can't trust that the points aren't going to stick out. We mentioned Terry Metalis. He's been doing a few tweets lately. There's definitely a ship that's part of season three. That's a Starfleet ship. Oh, yeah. We don't, we don't know what it is, but he's tweeting pictures of consoles with, a, you know, um, the cars, you know. So it's a 24th century Starfleet ship. Is is They built something for the show it, that's not La Serena, for sure. It, yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to that. I'm guessing after they fix the future, yada, yada, in season two, that they come back and Picard's got a Starfleet ship. I mean, I'm a little worried about this. You know, it's like we don't, again, we don't need Picard to be Captain Picard again. No, it doesn't make sense. And, you know, in season one, he tried and they were like, no. But now I guess they did give him a ship. Right. Or maybe he stole one. Who knows? Hopefully he stole one. That sounds yeah, like I hope more he fun. Stole one. Yeah. <laughs> So Discovery, we don't have a lot of news on Discovery, except that the edit, we know production had wrapped a while ago. Now we know that the editing is wrapping up. So um, one of the the editors, Scott Gamson, posts on Twitter a lot. And he posted uh, on the 22nd, which is today when we're recording, that he's wrapped his work for season four. He's one of the two main editors. Yeah. And uh, Michelle Paradise last week said she was working on the season finale. I don't, I don't necessarily think they're working in order but they're getting close to finishing the edit which doesn't mean the episodes are done uh, they cut the episode first but then you know there's big blank spots that say things like you know insert vfx shot here and right. stuff like that i've watched those and, cuts not of this show but oh yeah of the show of discovery lots of insert effect here i do think they're editing in order because i think you have to it's possible it's a serialized show and so the editing is really where the story kind of emerges and i think that you would have to do it in order Probably. Yeah. And they've been, you know, the, they've been working on it for a while. It does seem like while they were kind of extending, because we kept on saying, why aren't they finishing shooting? They This probably means they did all the pickup shots they needed in those in August. Right. Yep. So they're not going back because we know that um, Strange New Worlds is going to go back and do a few pickup shots, but they've got plenty of time. Yep. And just a reminder to everybody, the new season premieres on Thursday, November 18th. So mark your calendars. We don't have any news on Star Trek Prodigy this week, and we'll talk a little bit about Lower Decks news before we get into the review. But before that, we've got a little bit of classic 
Star Trek show news, I guess. Well, it's been a big week for Scott Bakula, who was also featured in a fun little piece uh, during the Emmys this week. That was fun. Yeah, that was. a. F- I, re- I actually really enjoyed that. I mean, he was with Jason Alexander, also a Star Trek person, at least one episode, um, about people who'd been nominated but never won. That's not the big news we're talking about, but that was just a funny... He's just been in the press a little bit. We're just about, depending on when you listen to this podcast, maybe just after the 20th anniversary of the premiere of Star Trek Enterprise. And it just so happens that Scott Bakula did an interview with Bob Saget for Bob Saget's podcast, because everyone's got a podcast these days. Well, so do we. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. Um, I'm a a Bob Saget fan. And, uh, you know, he talked about his whole career, everything. But they did get around us talking about Enterprise. And one thing I thought was interesting is Bakula spoke more about being a real fan of the show and Roddenberry's vision and... you know, how, uh, you know, it was an out-of-body experience being in the captain's chair for the first time. And it's it wasn't just a job to him, which I hadn't heard some of these things before, probably just because maybe I haven't done enough paying attention. Um, but uh, it was good to hear all that. And as he was talking about Roddenberry's vision, he then talked about how the show launched in, in September 2001 and how it basically, you know, premiered right after 9-11 and he said our series was colored by 9-11 and he then he said it it eventually took over the direction of our show the kind of post 9-11 era you know which was a very different time you know and, and things were dark television yeah things were dark and i you know that was certainly reflected in popular culture and the implication he gave was that they, you know, that, that Star Trek had this vision, this optimistic, futuristic vision, but that because of the era they were in, it wasn't as reflected on the show as it could have been, I think, is, you know, with the reading between the lines I got from that. Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, I, I interviewed Connor Trenier a couple of years ago, and he talked about he didn't get so much into how it. He he talked about the importance of 9-11 to the show and how it had a big impact on it. But I think what Scott said is interesting because I do feel like part of my struggle with Enterprise sometimes is that it just, I didn't feel that ultimate hopeful tone. Like things can be dark and go wrong, but there's still got to be this sort of optimism, idealism. And it, I did think it wasn't always there. I mean, part of me feels that because a lot of things changed during that because they also moved to heavy, heavy serialization. I think part of me feels like they overcorrected you know, on that show. And I, I kind of wish they decided to buck the trend of the day and almost get more optimistic, more hopeful, you know, try to be a shining light during that dark and gloomy era. But I could see why at the time they looked at other shows like 24 and the West wing and other shows that were dealing with heavy, serious issues. And they decided that this is the right tone for the era. This is what the audiences are expecting. Yeah. I mean, look, Star Trek has always tried to be relevant to what's going on, but what you choose to do with that is, is the interesting part. And I agree with you that 
that choosing to go the other way in reaction to the same thing would have, I think, made the show better. It certainly would have been more fun for me to watch. He also talks about all the trouble with the UPN network. Oh, that was actually something I wanted to add to the. I would bet that a lot of that pressure came from the network, who was very heavy-handed and involved in a lot of stuff and a lot of the decisions that were made. That's a good point. He did, dis- you know, he described dealing with UPN as being tumultuous. You know, I mean, this is a. There's a lot of corporate sh- stuff going on um, with Viacom and Paramount and CBS during these years, including eventually breaking up and this affected UPN, which itself essentially dissolved shortly after the show ended and became the CW. And so he said that the show would have been better off if it was like next generation of DS9. It was just a syndicated show. He said it would have gone seven seasons, which, you know, maybe that's true. I think the world of syndication had kind of changed by 2005, but, it, you know, it's possible. I certainly think UPN was a bad influence on the show as it moved on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, too. There was some non-Star Trek news. And in fact, other sites have picked up this element of the podcast more, which is it looks like he's going to return to a sci-fi role, but not Star Trek. Dr. Sam Beckett may be coming back. A little quantum leap action. I think you could. I mean, first of all, it didn't end in a good definitive way. So we definitely need a little closure. Um, I That show was super wacky. Um, and the premise didn't really make any sense. But this is a case. <laughs> but the thing with, I think that he carried that show beautifully. Like, I'm not, I, I'm going to be really honest. I'm not a huge fan of his Captain Archer. And I don't think it was his fault. I think that character was just not properly developed into a very unique person. Um, but on, he blew me away on Quantum Leap with uh, the range of stuff that he had to do and the believability that he got out of me when I was watching it. That, oh yeah, this guy is like an old black woman or a young pregnant woman or a boy or whatever he was. I thought he did great. And so I would love to see some kind of, I think you could do something fun with it for sure. I don't know if I want to see the same two guys doing the same two things, but I think that you could definitely come up with a good creative concept. Does it work in 2021 to have a old white guy step into a young black man's or black woman's shoes and, and solve her problems. I say there is a way to do it. You know, I don't like all these. I love the show. I love the show. I think you can do it work for the eighties because maybe you show him learning stuff too. him learning that it's not as easy as he thinks, which is important to know, which I think was the point of the original show too, you know? So I think, you know, they have the right attitude and, and so if they do it, it could, you could make it work and it would be really interesting. And it's a good way to actually talk about those issues with a sci-fi setting, which is sometimes the best way to talk about them. I think if they do it, they need to find a way to keep it light and fun, but respectful. Now, this isn't a definitive thing. He just said there's significant talks happening um, and... Don Belisario is still involved. He's still a pretty heavyweight producer. We know that the head of Peacock programming or NBC programming last year said they want to bring back Quantum Leap. So 
you know, 2022, 2023, Scott Bakula, Sam Beckett, Dean Do Stockwell. It. Do it. And then bring in, you know, you get some other cast members to help with the white guy, with the old white guy factor. Definitely. Maybe Ziggy will be personified as a person, you know, and they could bring in a new character or something like that. They could create a Ziggy android. Yep. So before we get into the episode of Lower Decks, um, I finally posted my interview with Mike McMahon. This was a short interview on the red carpet. We kept on getting interrupted by Jerry O'Connell. Uh, so it was, <laughs> it was not, uh, it was fun. I had, a, I had a good time, but it wasn't as long as I wanted it to be. Right. Of course you kept getting interrupted by Jerry O'Connell. That happens yeah. to everybody. Um, I liked a lot. I mean, you didn't get much time with him, but I liked what, what you guys talked about. I like that you brought up like the Magato thing and and sort of challenged him on it. I like. Well, his... I didn't actually bring up. I mean, I brought up the episode, right? But I didn't actually say the words. Uh, by the way, I want to apologize to the one listener out there who noted that uh, when we used the phrase "masturbating Mugato," she got embarrassed. I think she's a minister, actually, and someone was <laughs> watching her listen to our podcast, and it caused a a moment of uh, so just. Um, I think I just it said was it because. Again. So- it was because someone else walked in. That was what it was. Yeah. So that someone apologies. walked in just just in time to hear that phrase. <laughs> and actually, I want to apologize because he didn't actually say masturbating Magato. Oops, I said it again. He oh. said yanking Magato. Is that better? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but he did say at a high level that there definitely are limits on what he would do in Lower Decks that he would, you know, compared to Brick and Morty and his other show, Solar Opposites, which is pretty much an R-rated show. Well, the thing that's funny that he said was he said, I've never seen Star Trek as celebrating Puritanism, right? And he says, I think Star Trek has always embraced sexuality and humanism. But I got to say, and I mean, to be fair, he did point out like people tugging on Ferengi ears, which is basically, I'm going to say it, masturbating them. However... <laughs> <laughs> I do think that Star Trek, especially original series and Next Generation, were super, super cagey about sex. They were not comfortable whenever they were supposed to discuss it or it came up, especially our captains would get all like awkward and weird. And so I don't think they embraced it the way that I felt they should for people in the future. And then I think there was some it was definitely like Deep Space Nine, I think, embraced it more. For sure. Well, I mean, they, they certainly went further than any Star Trek show has gone for. They didn't show the sex act, but they were kind of having sex on the log. But, you, you know, we've been rewatching, you know, we do this weekly rewatch. And whenever we watch all these old episodes of the original series, you're always like, oh, my God, these women are not wearing any clothes. You know, so and that was like <laughs> the 60s. You know, sexuality has always been part of the show. I agree with him. And certainly umox is a sexual act and they were absolutely i'm glad that he's defending it the main thing is is i thought it was interesting that it wasn't in the script he basically said the artists went further than (laughs) we thought they'd go but i thought it was funny and i left it in and um which shows he respects his team he thought it was funny i didn't think it was funny but i get that people do think it's funny and that's and he's saying look if it's funny, then that's what really matters because it's comedy. So, Right. I didn't think it was funny, but I didn't think, oh, goodness, how could that be in there? Like, I wasn't horrified. 
I was just, I just thought it was crude and not funny. And I like crude and funny, but I don't like crude just for crude sake, which is what it felt like. But I didn't think, how dare you, or that doesn't belong, or I'm leaving, or any, anything like that. I just rolled my eyes and waited till it was over. He refers to pearl clutchers. And, you know, this, because this week's episode has a lot of sex jokes in it. And I was fine with all of them. I thought they were all very funny. So, yeah, same. I'm fine with having fun with sex. You know, we even see a sort of naked Billups, you know, and we'll get into that later and his sexy guards. We see his butt. We have one other interview to talk about, though, because you spoke to this week's big guest star, Jeffrey Combs. Actually, today. Is that when you spoke to him? Yes. There were two interesting things. One was I was fascinated with the process that he described of shooting the episode, especially under COVID. It sounded very sad. I mean, he loved it, but... It is amazing how much of a good performance you get from the way it's done. You know, he basically says, I get a script. I don't talk to anyone beforehand. I go into a room. I'm the only person in the room. There's some people behind the glass. I can't really see them. There's some people on a Zoom thing. I don't know who any of them are. (laughs) I just start saying lines. And every once in a while, some random person says something to me. And then I leave. You know, and he he loved doing the role. He had a lot of fun with it, but it's amazing the quality of performance you can get from that kind of weird environment, I guess. Well, you know what it is? They are being very, very smart with their guest stars. Like before it was Richard Kind, who's a total pro and delivered all this great stuff. This week, we have Jeffrey Combs and we have June Diane Raphael. Like these people are incredibly talented. And so when you get talent like that, then this isn't such a problem. I would say there are certain people that maybe they could consider booking on future shows if the environment was different and people could record together, do lines back and forth, have some fun. Um, but they need they need really experienced people to do it this way. And they get them. They hire them. That's who they pick. He was also very happy that, because obviously Jeff Combs has... I don't know if he has the record for the most characters in Star Trek. I don't think he does, actually. Von Armstrong might be. Yeah, he might. I think he's the guy who has the most. I think it's 12, possibly. Right. But, you know, he's got a lot of roles. And he was really excited that when he got the Star Trek call, it was for a brand new character. He said, this is fresh territory. So he was very, you know, he was very enthusiastic about having a, a fresh role. And he actually said he went out of his way to make sure it didn't sound like any other Star Trek character or other. I kind of thought he sounded a little bit like his reanimator character, but he said, no, like I was trying to do something new and be, you know, a computer. Yeah. Worked for me. I think it did it. Even though he knew nothing about lower decks, really going into this. But the script was really good as we'll talk about. And if you just had the script and those lines, I mean, it's pretty clear what that character's like. I mean, I would still like to see him come back as one of his characters. And I, I did ask him like, well, if he did, what would work? Cause now that he kind of knows the deal and he, he thought Brunt would be a good fit or Ferengi. Cause he thinks Ferengi are a little more fun. So let's get into the episode itself. Let's start with the title, <laughs> which I want to <laughs> talk about because I looked it up as you did before me and found that it's a Shakespeare quote from Venus and Adonis, which is a poem that he wrote about Venus's love for Adonis. And so the line 
<laughs> I'm going to read the line. So anyone who's got people walking in listening, <laughs> this is another one. Um, <laughs> the line is graze on my lips. And if those hills be dry, stray lower where the pleasant fountains lie. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> he was the Sir Mix a lot of his day, obviously. But Shakespeare quotes are, you know, a Star Trek tradition, of course. Yep. And it fits in the episode, right? Adonis is basically Billups. And I guess <laughs> his mother is the Venus in this analogy, perhaps. Or at least his mother's guards. Sort of. Yeah, she doesn't want him to have <laughs> sex with her. But he keeps saying it in a way that you think that that's what he means, which is what makes it really funny because he keeps saying that his mother's trying to trick him into having sex. And so, and everybody's like, what? So. (laughs) Which of course is weird because his mother is played by his wife. Wife. (laughs) (laughs) They are a very interesting couple. These two. I mean, I love her. I watch Grace and Frankie and she's really, really good on it. But these two are very interesting strange people so (laughs) here's a crazy side note paul shearer has a podcast called how did this how did this get made about bad movies and the three people who do the podcast are paul shearer his wife jude diane Raphael, and jason manzoukas yes who's now in prodigy now all three of them are star trekkers crazy and he's a big fan he's an interesting guy i heard him on the official star trek podcast uh, a while ago, and it was very much worth listening to. I've always been a fan of his. Um, he's a very funny guy. He's a good writer. He, you know, th- he was actually going to reboot Galaxy Quest, but that got caught up in all sorts of problems. I mean, he's a very talented guy, and I've always felt that this show has wasted him in a weird way. That he just he very often just has boring kind of generic engineer lines and. I feel like this episode more than any other obviously gave him the chance to really show that he's, you know, how good he is. Yeah. He was really funny. I also love that people keep cheering Bill ups, Bill ups. It's nice. He was yeah. celebrated by everybody. Yeah. It's so, about time for him. Yeah. And my big take on the, like this episode, I think more than any other, this season made me laugh out loud a lot at very small moments that weren't necessarily Star Trekky moments, but were just really funny little lines that made me laugh. Like Rutherford's <laughs> saying things like um, that he, you know, Tendy tells him that he should get out of his comfort zone. And he says, but I love my zone. It's so comfortable. And all those little moments made me laugh out loud multiple times. So I loved that it was about a character we haven't focused on yet. I thought both of the big stories were strong and riveting and hilarious so a you know a plus for me on this one i thought it was very funny it's a it's a good point where this episode didn't lean heavily into star trek there weren't a lot of easter eggs um at all i mean there's you know there's usually you know you can't do the show without a few but not a lot probably the least amount this season and yet even though it wasn't a lot of star trek references it was a very star trek episode oh yeah very much so. Well, first of all, the queen to me was a Luxana tribute character. Like I thought definitely modeled or ins- modeled on or inspired by Luxana Troy. And then I loved the twist that it that it was a male, like a son that she was coming. Because, you know, I, I actually went back. I tried to watch Haven 
<laughs> from Next Generation, which is when Troy's supposed to get married. Um, and it's just really terrible. And it was, I didn't even make it through the whole episode because it was so, I thought maybe I'd like to save it so that we can all watch it together because it's just terrible. But it was a great, just the right twist on that. Her whole society <laughs> was hilarious. A, I mean, but it's also, I mean, I know it was played for a joke, certainly. But it does, I thought it was an interesting sci-fi concept and very Star Trek to kind of envision an interesting, almost more original series perhaps. But if you think about yeah. it, in a, in a post-scarcity universe, things like this would happen. People who like Renfair would say, let's go make a Renfair planet where we could all do it all the time. Yeah, no, I totally buy that. That was, I thought that was really smart and funny. Now, what I couldn't tell... Because the way they talked about it was, did the dragons exist on this planet and then they built a Renfair society around them? Or did they create dragons? They said the planet with the dragons that was colonized by all those Renfair types. Yeah. That's what I think Rutherford said it. Yeah. So he said it was that planet with the dragons that was colonized. So to me, the dragons came first. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. Which is kind of, you know, an interesting twist on that. And then, of course, you know, the Mariner and Boimler story is a super classic Star Trek. It's the oh. shuttle crash. Gravimetric shear, the shuttlecraft crash. The whole thing was great. Every show has done a shuttlecraft crashing episode, I think. Right? Someone will mm-hmm. check me on that. But from the original series, you know, it's a great scenario to create tension and have a little adventure on some weird planet somewhere and so again classic star trek without being over you know heavy-handed about it yeah um you know and the added fun you know of an evil computer which again (laughs) is super star trek especially the original series which just seemed to have it out for the ais of this world i just kind of assumed ai was a bad deal Right. Well, it was the sixth. That's true. And the humans are always smarter in the end. Boimler, like when Boimler tricks it, right? What does he say? He says something like, like I, I, you've been boimed, he says. And I feel like that was maybe <laughs> a bit of a throwback to how Kirk could always talk computers into destroying themselves. I thought that was kind of how it was going to end, was that the computer was going to, you know. But, well, this gets to another thing that Jeff Combs said to me, which is he doesn't want to do roles where they kill the character at the end. Because he said, Agamus lives. He's excited about that. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to see him come back. It was funny. Was I loved his, I just loved like the wiggling wires at the side when he was so excited. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I mean, why didn't they wrap a bungee cord around him? I mean, like the wires seemed to be, his whole goal in life was to be plugged into something. So why didn't they cut those wires? Or so it just, it felt like, again, like we were talking about the board queen, you bring the board queen on your ship, take some precautions. That's yeah. all I'm saying. You know, <laughs> no, you got an also, evil computer. Don't two ensigns in a shuttlecraft. I mean, that's not the greatest way when it's something that dangerous that had controlled an entire civilization, a hundred year war, because a computer yeah. tricked them into fighting each other, which they found very embarrassing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I would say that maybe you should have someone else along other than two lowly ensigns. This gets to, again, the, the, the fundamental premise of the show, which is a great premise, which is 
these are the stories after the story. So we imagine, or we get, because we, we start the episode, you know, the planet's in flames. It's all over, right? But there must have, but there was something. There was a war. There was a computer. Then they had to get rid of the computer. So you could almost imagine that there was, you know, Picard or someone showed up and they figured out the computer was doing it all. And they, they, you know, had a great speech and they talked everyone into stopping fighting. And then they send the Cerritos to kind of, you know, come in later to do the mop up. Right. that's their job. Pick up the computer, the evil computer, right. and get it out yeah, of and, there. And, yeah, so it, it kind of makes it like you you take the computer back to Daystrom. Right. You know, we did the hard work. All you have to do is take it from the planet to Daystrom. That should be easy, unless you run into planetary shear, obviously. Gravimetric <laughs> Gravimetric shear, shear. yes. I, it's one of my favorite kinds of shear, actually. Um, <laughs> the character development in this episode was... Good and bad. I don't want to use the word bad, but there was a little bit of, there's a little bit of backpedaling here because I kind of thought Boimler and Mariner had kind of worked out their issues, but obviously there's still some issues here. Right, but different issues. But it's still about him going to the Titan. I mean, I guess it is annoying that he keeps on bringing up the Titan. But it, but it was more about her. I mean, yes, there was jealousy there, but it was also she actually thought he was not ready. She thought he was going to get killed. And he's proving that that has that that time on the Titan actually did teach him a lot. Right. He could climb trees now almost. Sort of. He uses phrases like wet but work. His, yeah. <laughs> wet work. <laughs> but he did do something I don't think he would have done before his Titan adventures. The way that he saved the day. All season long, he's been showing that he's ready to move up. For sure. I mean, he deserves to be a lieutenant, to be perfectly honest, at this point. And it's still unfair that he was bumped down to Ensign. But no, everything he did in this episode was spot on. And and it's good that Mariner kind of finally noticed that. Because what she did was shitty, let's face it. The thing she did with Ransom was uncool. Yeah, Um, I totally agree. And that's what kind of bothered me. You wouldn't do that to anyone because you're actually, you know, diminishing their reputation. But I think she thought that he was actually in danger. Either she believed it or she talked herself into believing that she was actually saving him. Yeah, she's overly protective, which shows that she cares. But, you know, last week he had the kind of thumbs up from Ransom. And in this one, Ransom said, oh, I thought he was ready. You know, so it's almost like two steps forward and one step back, you know, for poor Boimler. Which they have to do to keep him an ensign. And keep him on that lower deck. Fair enough. The Tendon Rutherford story, um, it, w- it was really a Rutherford and Billup story, but there there certainly was a Tendy element to it. Yeah, and a very Star Trek-y thing at the end, actually. Because when he's telling her, like, you know, I guess that's, you know, it's like part of Starfleet to always think, you know, someone could die, or maybe you'll think they're dead, and then they're not. <laughs> and she's just like, yeah, uh like <laughs> the look on her face when she well, realizes that this could keep happening, which of course it happens in every Star Trek show. I think there's more to it here. I think this is in my interview with Mike, he said that there's going to be some romance on the show. I think we're leading up to the final Tendi. You know, she's going to finally admit that she's in love with him. And I think this episode showed that. And I think Dr. Tana knows because you notice that the moment, I mean, Dr. Tana is like a mean cat, right? 
And when she found out that Rutherford was, they thought he was dead. It was almost a tender moment. Yeah, it was. It was. You know, so people know how she feels. She doesn't know, maybe. He doesn't know, but I think it's obvious to everyone she's in love with him. Yep. No, I could buy that. But I still think there was a good, I think in addition to that, there was also just the idea that that's Starfleet and she's going to have to face it. Like if it happened to Mariner or Boimler, she'd also be upset. So that's true. That's and, be, and not true. be able to handle it. Like when he's saying you can handle it, it's Starfleet. And she's like, no, I don't think that I can. <laughs> All very, very true. I mean, the thing that I love about this episode is that the stories themselves are great. But then all the tiny little details that give that provide the comedy were so sharp and so funny and surprising and just kept coming. And I just thought that was a great way of doing it where it's within the story and it doesn't slow down the story or take away from it. But it's just these little constant pops of comedy that made me laugh like the black licorice. Which I take a little issue with as someone who actually loves black licorice. Yeah, you were you were the one person. I well, um, I know I, a few it, others, but we are a very tiny group. <laughs> My husband was horrified that I love black licorice. And um, comedy I, always comes in threes, right? So there was the first time, and then there was the water, and then the plants tasted like black licorice, yes, which is yes. the third time. The writing is so tight on this show, and they're getting better at it. It was funny. And it was Star Trek and it was a good story. It's also like the animators, you know, it's funny because you mentioned like Mike said that he didn't write that into the script with a Mugato, right? And so, but then the animators did it. And the thing that kept cracking me up was the dancing lady in white, the Hesperian (laughs) dancing, (laughs) twirling lady who just kept, who wanted to bask in his glory. And then she just kept dancing around like you just saw like her and she at one point like part of her came into frame and then left but and then there she is spinning again and every time i saw her i just started laughing again now you start thinking how exactly does the society work (laughs) right like she talks about her blacksmith like do they do they really not know how these ships work at all do they you know how far down this well they know how they work they tricked him into you know they they rigged the whole thing right so there, there's some that do yeah you know, so i guess they're all faking it they're all pretending to be these um renaissance people yes because when they need it remember the guy with the was it a mandolin or some kind of like instrument right it was some kind and of yeah like got used for evil purposes <laughs> right it's somehow the mandolin could control their communicators to block out the communicators yep they have some high tech stuff going on in their dragon breath. <laughs> I did love that moment when Rutherford tries to fit in and he describes <laughs> the, the the elf matrix and Bill's like, don't do that. Don't, don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> that made me laugh also. So I guess before we wrap up, do you just have any one line you want to, you know, one moment that was a big favorite for you? I had so many. And I'm going to have a really hard time trying to pick the one that I like the best. Um, <laughs> but I think I will pick Rutherford describing the new ship he's nervous about working on as a fancy cruiser stuffed with puffy monarchs. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, there's only one monarch, right? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess and he's, then wait, he's, what? he's a little unclear on how royalty works, I can imagine. I have one other, which is Jeffrey Combs saying, I know when I'm feeling scared, the best thing you can do is get plugged into a shuttlecraft computer. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely had a one-track mind. I loved how when he tried to, at the beginning, when he tried to convince um, Ransom to throw him into... Yep. <laughs> Or when he gets the data on Boimler, he goes, sorry, just stretching. <laughs> I loved everything about this episode, but I really loved when he gets plugged in at the end to the wall of computers and the evil computers start arguing. You know, uh, one evil computer next to him says, you both suck. You don't understand what being an evil computer even is. <laughs> Now, if you look closely, by the way, there is a little Easter egg in here, which, again, I think is one of Mike's animators having a little fun. Oh, yeah. One of the evil computers had the CBS logo, which was uh, uh, biting biting the hand that feeds you, perhaps. But it was kind of funny, I thought. Yep, I agree. I also did think it was funny when the computer was um, plugged into the shuttlecraft and then found out he was actually just the dimmer. And so he's like, okay, I shall blind you. And then tries using the dimmer. <laughs> oh, just good, stupid, smart, fun stuff. <laughs> but I think that's it. I think we, we covered the episode. I feel like there's off. Sometimes there's more to say when we don't like something than when we do. Um, in this, I could spend the whole thing just, just doing lines from it. But uh, I don't mean doing lines. Oops. Just saying lines from it. Um <laughs> <laughs> But I really, I just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this one. Maybe one of my all-time favorites. A top episode, for sure. And, you know, we've only got three more left for season two. I'm getting, you know, I'm not sad yet, but I can see the end in sight. And I'm already starting to worry about missing the show. So I'm just loving season two. Yeah, me too. All right, so I think we should wrap up with our with our bits of the week. So why don't you go first? Well, mine is an event that I'm just looking forward to. This may not surprise you, but when I was a kid, I played Dungeons & Dragons. No way. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can't – it hasn't really been a big part of my life, but I am looking forward this weekend to checking out – there's an event called D&D Celebration. It's a virtual event. And it's it, there's an intersection with Star Trek because Noah Averback Katz is going to be a dungeon master for his uh, and they're going to play D&D and it's going to be Anthony Rapp, Mary Wiseman, Blue DeBario, Ian Alexander and Will Wheaton. Um, and that's going to be on Friday. And then on Saturday, Anthony Rapp is going to participate in something they're called the Circus of Sound, a D&D musical. So you're going to want to check out dndcelebration.com and you'll be able to check all these things out for free this weekend. And I'm sure they'll all be available after this weekend to check out. That is like the ultimate nerdery in such a good way. Like you get your Star Trek, your D&D, which my son is a big D&D guy, um, and then musicals. <laughs> so triple threat. <laughs> so what's your bit of the week? Mine is something I actually I was surprised I'd never brought this one up before. But Pamela Faraden, I think that's how you say her last name. She played she was in an original series episode called well, a terrible one. <laughs> 
and the children shall lead. She played Mary. She was a kid. She was a child actress who was on every show of a certain era. She was on the Brady Bunch. She was on every movie, every show. She and well into her teenagerhood, I would say she was still doing tons and tons of TV. And so on Facebook, she has a Facebook account that anyone can just follow. And she talks a lot about all the different people she's worked with over the years, but she does post some great specifics about working on Star Trek in that episode, um, about how great William Shatner was to her. She talks about how in that scene where they got ice cream, the food replicator kept slamming down on William Shatner's hand and that he never lost his cool, even though it hurt and wasn't fun. Um, And she has a lot more great stories that she posts. And she mentioned that she's working on a memoir and that there's a whole chapter that's just about doing that Star Trek episode. So I will put up a link to her account and then actually just a link specifically to the Star Trek content if you want to just find that. Although I recommend looking through everything that she posts. But it's just it's so fun to get those stories that you just wouldn't get anywhere else except from those people who were there at that moment. And I like that she remembers it so vividly when she has so many very famous people and projects that she was involved with. I love those kind of insider details. Yeah, she has this, like, he was so sweet to her and she obviously had a crush on him and it just sounds just delightful. I like a good positive Shatner story. Even though And the Children Shall Lead is terrible. Is truly awful. <laughs> I mean, the fact that, that the main bit, the main guest star is played by a famous Los Angeles attorney for who ba- does for not a lot know of how bad to act. people. Yeah. For bad people. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but not an actor. I don't I, for, I don't know the story of how he got the job, but it obviously wasn't because he was good at acting. Um, no, it was I I believe and I could be wrong, but I feel like it was maybe Fred Freiberger and I think that he just wanted a name and talked him into it or something. And then his kid was in it. That was part of the package deal, I believe. Crazy. All right, so that's it for another week of All Access Star Trek. We'll be back next Friday, as we are every Friday, with the review of Episode 8 and more news and interviews. All right, see you then.